You're listening to Precinct 444, a podcast network from the National Law Enforcement Museum. Today we're bringing you an episode from the Encore series, where we revisit past museum programs and conversations. Welcome back to the Encore Show. Last week, we heard from the Washington, D.C. Department of Forensic Science in a program titled Scientific Justice, Solving Crimes in the People's Lab, which originally aired on November 4th, 2020. Part two concludes this series with a question and answer portion of the program. And now for part two of Revisiting Scientific Justice, Solving Crimes in the People's Lab. My name is Anna Muckenthus, and I am the Education Program Specialist at the National Law Enforcement Museum. I work with our education programs, all the education programs that come through the museum, including this one here. And uh, this is not my first time working with the Department of Forensic Science. They help us a lot with our forensic programming at the museum. Um, And we were really excited to bring them on here for this program today. So I'm going to be reading off your questions for Dr. Smith and her colleagues to answer. And so let's get started. So our first question is from Morgan. And it's two questions. Are there dedicated personnel at DFS that focus specifically on cold cases? That's an excellent question. Right now, we actually have a grant um, that we are, uh, BJA grant out of the Department of Justice, that we are working with both uh, investigators from the Metropolitan Police Department, as well as attorneys from the United States Attorney's Office. So it's sort of a, uh, a group effort to look at cold cases and to be able to take some cases and see if we can go back. These are cases where we have either have no suspect, but we have DNA evidence, go back and send those off to other contract laboratories who are helping us with that familial testing, that deeper dive into the DNA that's present to see if we can have any connections. We just literally have sent some cases out for that um, and we look forward to hopefully getting some interesting results from that. And Morgan's second question actually goes back to that familial DNA. Um, Does DFS use familial DNA searching to um, solve some of these cold cases or help to solve some of these cold cases? Yes, we definitely hope to. We will have to do that, though, in conjunction with laboratories that have the broader technical capability to do that sort of DNA testing that we don't do internally. And then we will work with them to access different databases that are out there. And that's going to be a combination effort between our lab folks as well as the detectives that we're working with. So we look forward to that. Excellent. And then uh, we have another question. We have a question from Lauren. Um, How much of DFS investigators' time is spent in court or preparing for court compared to their work in the lab? Do the same people who did the lab work also present the evidence in court? Yes, so I'm going to turn to both uh, Chris to answer that question from a crime scene scientist perspective, and then we'll ask Wayne. Chris? I would say in the past that uh, when I was on the police department that we were being called into court more often. We do have people going into court to testify about the evidence that they collected and how they went about collecting it. Um, I I would say uh, maybe about 10% of their time is spent going to court, whereas 90% of their time is actually doing the actual work. So 
And that might be a little bit different for um, some of the, the laboratories that uh, units of work under Wayne. I, can, I know that, uh, for example, I can, I'll let Wayne speak also, but I know our forensic chemistry group can be very, very busy and can be going to testify quite a bit as to the drug analysis that they're doing. And then that may vary from for the rest of the units. Wayne? Yes, so uh, one of the important aspects of uh, preparing for court is that while you are completing your examination, you will be documenting that in your technical notes. So you will, as you do your observations, your analysis and your results and your interpretations, you put that in your technical notes. So it would go into a case file docket and then the report will go out to the police agencies. Now, when you get a subpoena a couple of years later, then um, essentially you will go and pull that case file. It would have gone through to the discovery through our general legal, uh, through our legal department. And then for an examiner to prepare, it's literally just going, I guess, through the case notes that you've uh, taken a year or two years ago to refresh your memory as to what you did um, with those items and how you kind of reported that. Um, and that vary depending on the size of the case. Um, but typically, uh, the fundamental premise of your science, you would know that as general knowledge, and then you would just have to refresh your memory with respect to the actual evidence that you did in that specific case. Yes, and I, I think our forensic chemists probably go the most, um, and then our, our, our DNA and firearms and latent fingerprint examiners would follow in their testimony. And I, I also think part of the question was, do the examiners who actually do the testing testify? Yes, they do. In, uh, I used to be with the FBI. The FBI, we had analysts who would help us, technicians who would help us, and then I as an examiner would testify to their work. That's not the case here in Washington. Uh, the folks that do the science actually take it to court and testify about it. And then uh, we actually have a follow-up question uh, from John. How often are the lab examiners required to testify in court? Well, uh, things have really changed during COVID. So nobody's really testifying right now because the courts are in essence sort of shut down. Um, but for some of our folks, they may go testify once a week as a part of their job. As I said, I think our forensic chemist team is the busiest um, and they are going very often. Um, whereas other people may not be testifying as much um, in some of the other disciplines. Excellent. And then uh, I have a really good question here from Wendy. Um, what is the most exciting new technology on the horizon for forensic sciences? Oh, where do I start and how much time do we have? A um, couple things. One thing that we're looking at in our pattern recognition sciences we have a great new process. It's not that new, but it's new to us, but it's called MIDEO, where you can actually put a latent fingerprint, a digital image of it, and the examiner can make markings of it. And then that can all be sort of erased so that a second examiner can come in and look at it completely blind to what the other person's thoughts were. So that's very powerful. We have 3D imaging of the striations and markings you see on firearms. Um, and so that's something we're looking at. We're looking at the, not only being able to look at it under a scope, but to scan sort of the outside of that casing, get those markings, and then have that compared digitally. So that's an exciting piece. Um, I'm personally, I have a love for DNA. That's my background. So we are bringing on what's called next generation sequencing, 
And so to the first person's question, someday we will be able to sequence the portions of DNA that are now being done in contract labs. So we'll be able to do familial searching in here. But the area that is just exploding is anything that has to do with these cell phones and, and any kind of uh, technology that collects digital information. These are invaluable pieces of, of evidence that if you think about all the interactions you have with your phone, we capture that and we're able to get into and discern from any phone that is brought to us what that information is. So this is probably the biggest area of new things that will be coming out on the horizon. And then uh, our next question kind of touches on this too. Um, have there been any technology advances in crime scene bullet trajectory analysis? Well, I'm going to leave that to the two gentlemen sitting <laughs> next to me. That's Wayne there. Okay, so we're going to turn to Wayne for that trajectory analysis. Okay, so we have different 3D scanning systems that essentially is manufactured. There's a couple of manufacturers out there that essentially do the 3D. But when it comes to crime scene reconstruction, um, essentially, as like essentially with crime scene reconstruction, you essentially when it comes to the trajectory of firearms, um, you need two points. And um, there's different laser upgrades, essentially, that you can use different technology measuring devices that's more digital. But at the bottom line, it comes to, down to a, a human, the actual technician that we're going to have to make those two points count and um, uh, uh, place those two points in order to get measurements in order to determine an angle to tell you where the person was standing at the time of the things. Um, so there's that old school tradition, there might be minor changes in measuring devices that, that might be improved, but the, the, the big manufacturers, they now using uh, 3D scanners essentially to capture and document that transit. So it depends as to what you want to reconstruct and what you want to illustrate in court will determine essentially um, what type of instrumentation you want to use. And then I have quite a few questions um, kind of about uh, from, it looks like they're from students um, about that are interested in working in forensic science. Um, they're very interested in um, if they're going to study crime scenes or if they want to do a career in that crime scene sciences, um, like what Chris is uh, the director of, um, what would be the most useful way um, or what degree would be the most useful compared to uh, working in the forensics lab? So I actually think the, the best thing to do is be as broad as possible when you're working, when you're going through school, because um, we want you to have a long career. And though you may have, as some of the scientists that spoke to you today, they may have focused on crime scene sciences, but ultimately they went into another more in the laboratory type discipline. So if you think about it that way, as long as you have a strong science, if you like biology, take biology. If you like chemistry, take chemistry. If you like physics, take physics. We do want our crime scene sciences folks to come with some kind of science background because it helps you understand the data you'll be collecting, documentation, and some of the more mundane things that we actually ask our crime scene scientists to do. But you also want to make sure you understand the uh, criminal justice system here in the United States. So you should take courses in that. You should understand how the criminal justice system works because that's mainly the, the system that you're going to be supporting. But that's what we're looking for. But I would get that science, I would still get that because that serves you well down the road 
if you want to change or if the laboratory you work for wants you to do more than just crime scene. There are some labs where uh, the scientists will go out and actually collect the evidence, bring it back and then do some of the evidence processing. So that would bode well for you if you had your foot in both worlds. But the key is an internship. That is really the key that you need to find out if you are cut out for this because when you walk into a laboratory, and that's why we've talked a little bit about the documentation and, and those things, you wanna make sure you're going to be a good fit. It's all very exciting, but until you see the day-to-day, -day, um, I think you that's when you'll really help you decide what you wanna do. So um, we really stress that. We actually offer internships here. COVID-19 has affected the amount of internships. And we don't just have internships for the science side. I'm sitting here in this room with my amazing comms team who put together those videos. And I'm looking at an intern who's actually here supporting our communications team. So I think that's what you should look at. You should knock on the door of local laboratories in your area, see if they could use some help and at least get that sort of taste of what it's really like within the buildings or out on the streets. Excellent. And then um, I have an, uh, a question specifically for Chris. Um, what If you already have some experience with the DC Police Department and uh, a criminal justice degree, um, how would that get you into, uh, how could you use that experience to get uh, into the Department of Forensic Science? So uh, we recently looked at that because a lot of people do take criminal justice classes because traditionally uh, these crime scene sciences jobs were through the police department. So recently we went back and um, upgraded our position descriptions for entry level to allow for people with criminal justice backgrounds to come in as an entry level person. Um, for our more experience, you have to come in with some level of experience. Uh, if you came in at say, for instance, a grade 11 or 12, you would have to have um, some crime scene experience. So you would have to already work somewhere else. But we have recognized that a lot of people do take criminal justice classes because they're on the fence. Do they want to go into a lab? Do they want to be on the police department? You know, there's just a lot of different areas of interest. So um, there is a path, at least in D.C., for people to get in. I can't speak for any other jurisdictions. And then um, the last question that we will answer is about um, the actual, like, uh, testing of evidence in the lab. Um, it's a really good question from Isaiah, which is pretty interesting. Um, how long does it take to actually process fingerprints to match at a crime scene? So I'll, I'll take a stab at it. So if the, if the evidence comes in and it is processed through chemical enhancement, right? It can be, it can, and we might be able to see something um, from the scene itself. We actually try to move that evidence through very quickly within one day or two days of receiving that evidence. But then the print has to move into our latent fingerprint uh, examination unit then they will take a look at it. They will actually utilize and put that information into what's called APHIS, which is the, the fingerprint uh, national database that we utilize. We may get uh, a connection through the use of that database. So it may be very quick. This may happen very quickly. The good news is they have about a 12 day turnaround time. 
and they have very little backlog. So here in DC, they're actually able to process all the evidence that's coming to them within at least 12 days. And sometimes we get connections very, very quickly. One thing's for sure, it's not like DP, it's much more than 20 seconds, but we actually have had times where we move the evidence through and within the next day or the same day, we're able to make some connections through our latent fingerprint process. So it can actually be one of the fastest disciplines um, here in the uh, Department of Forensic Sciences. Yes, and just to add on to what Dr. Smith said, so the average turnaround time is 12 days, which is mm -hmm. excellent. However, we are extremely responsive to expedited or priority requests. Um, for example, like on last week, Monday, we had the commander from MPD call us with three priority requests at 12 o'clock and we could give them by close of business day on the same day, verified results. So we are extremely responsive. And again, as I mentioned earlier, we want to provide an aid to advance an investigation. So even though we have the routine casework, so that's what you're gonna get if you become a scientist, you're gonna have your assigned work that's given to you by your manager when you get in in the morning. And then all of a sudden at 12, you change the direction and here's an expedited case that I want before you go home today. So that's kind of the life of a forensic scientist here at the department. And I think that's all the time we have for questions. There were a lot of really good questions today. I thank you all for your submissions and thank you to the Department of Forensic Science uh, for joining us today. Thanks for listening to this episode of Encore, featuring special guests from the DC Department of Forensic Science. We thank you for your support and remember, our upcoming episode releases are every Wednesday and published exclusively on Tuesdays is our monthly Icons episode. We hope you learned something from this episode and will join us next time for another edition of Encore where we revisit past museum programs and conversations. A special thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Encore, a series from the Precinct 444 Podcast Network by the National Law Enforcement Museum. Please subscribe to Precinct 444 on your favorite podcasting platform to stay connected and to receive our latest content as soon as it drops. We would love to hear from you. Send in your questions, comments, and feedback to precinct444 at nleomf.org. You can help us make our content even better. The National Law Enforcement Museum is located at 444 East Street Northwest in Washington, D.C., and is dedicated to telling the story of American law enforcement. We expand and enrich the relationship between law enforcement and the community through educational journeys, immersive exhibitions, and insightful programs. Find us online at lawenforcementmuseum.org and stay tuned for more podcast content from Precinct 444. Until next time, stay safe. We'll see you at the precinct. Thank you.